Hi, and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns, and I am an assistant professor in the Feminist Institute of Social Transformation at Carleton University, which sits on unceded Algonquin territory. On today's show, I'm joined by Lauren Monroe, a mad scholar and fat activist, a limited term faculty member at Toronto Metropolitan University and PhD candidate at Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm excited to speak to her about her work. Uh, so I've collaborated with Lucy Costa at the Empowerment Council uh, on an initiative to teach mad studies, basically, uh, to psychiatric residents um, in Toronto. And her life outside of academia. I got more into Bad activism is through zine making. They're kind of handmade, self-published books. They can be anything. Me, I write about fatness and queerness and madness. And as always, to get to learn how she thinks disability can save the world. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that we could make this work and could just have time to, to chat together. Me too. So let's get right into it. Um, I call this segment one inside the project, the research, the work, the art. Um, tell me, how did you uh, get connected to MAD studies? Mm. Um, that, that's a really good question. And um, I don't know, like an academic <laughs> or maybe like a person who just really likes quotes and that that meshes well um, with academia. Um, there's a there's a bell hooks quote that really kind of resonates for me around um, around this question. Um, and so it's from teaching to transgress and bell hooks says, I came to theory when I was hurting, when the pain within me was so intense that I could not go on living. I came to theory desperate wanting to comprehend what was happening around and within me. I saw in theory then a location for healing, end quote. Um, so I, this, this is kind of one that I come back to often uh, because yeah, how I kind of found MAD studies was you know a long time of, ago in my undergraduate when I was you know in psychology and at the time thinking, you know, I'm going to go the route of clinical psychology and I'm going to be different. I'm going to, um, you know, change from within this discipline um, as someone who, you know, now describes myself as mad or crazy. Those are terms that I like and I use, um, you know, but at the time uh, would have would have said, you know, mental health issues or mm -hmm. what have you. And so immersed in this kind of disciplinary way of knowing of psychology that frames um, you know, madness as a deficit, as something to kind of overcome, um, but getting connected into 
the Mad Student Society, like learning about and connecting with other people who had lived experiences of madness, um, however they defined them, uh, and learning about first the social model and disability studies um, of, oh, there's like, a, there's a different way of thinking about this, which was very different from what I was being taught yeah. at the time, right? So kind of coming across um, this, this way of thinking about madness and disability that shifted the frame away from individuals, away from um, problems or deficits uh, that just started to kind of pick away um, and open up my mind. For me, you know, MAD studies was kind of the first step into things, um, but not in isolation. So, you know, as a mad, queer, fat femme, my body and my mind um, have always seemingly been in rebellion, right? My identities, experiences, um, and embodiments uh, have just kind of seemed to be constantly straining against or overflowing boundaries of what has been deemed to be an acceptable body-mind. And right. so the, the kind of mad community um, intro uh, in tandem with really um, coming across both queer politics and mad and disabled community politics that connected me into thinking about bodies differently and thinking about fatness uh, differently. Um, and so it was through kind of various community connections and projects that, um, yeah, I started to discover and embrace these various fields, right? They evolved from kind of activism and community connection. Um, and I think in their ideal forms should be a blend of activism and academia. That was a very long answer, hopefully to answer to your question. It was a great answer. And I think you're starting off uh, your response uh, with that quote is so fascinating to me, like this idea of theory as healing and or theory leading to new worldviews and new paradigms and those being um, um, the ability to connect to then language that changes and that language leads you to community and that community leads to a form of new understanding, right? That this sort of boundless uh, or the, the these bodies that are otherwise bound can in fact be um, real possibilities for change and desire and love and joy and all those kinds of things that aren't usually out there. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And yeah, and I think that um, that it, it's also about a kind of theory, right? A kind mm -hmm. of thinking and theorizing that is really grounded and connected. That's the best kind of theory right. um, in my mind um, because sometimes theory can also feel alienating, right? And so trying to recognize that as well um, and thinking about that whole mess of connections when you're, um, you're really trying to ground it uh, in something as well. So I, I know you, you um, want to talk to us about a particular project that you've been working on. So um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, so I thought today um, I'd share a bit about an educational project that I've been involved in 
uh, since about 2017. Uh, so I've collaborated with Lucy Costa at the Empowerment Council uh, on an initiative to teach mad studies, basically, uh, to psychiatric residents um, in Toronto. Um, so hey. Sorry, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Empowerment Council? Yes, yeah. So the Empowerment Council acts as a, a voice for the collective community of mental health and addiction service users, primarily in the GTA and at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, also known as CAMH. Uh, so their physical location is at CAMH, but they're an independent body um, that gets involved in various kinds of activism uh, and advocacy pro projects. So from this educational piece uh, to being involved in inquests and things like that um, as well. And so the educational program that you're doing, teaching psychiatric residents about MAD scholarship, what is that like? Uh, it is uh, an experience. It is <laughs> quite an experience. Uh, so, so this, I, I was, I previously worked um, with Lucy and the Empowerment Council on another project um, about sexual health and psychiatric disability. And so that's how I came to kind of be connected with them. And Lucy reached out to me because uh, at the time, 2016, 2017, she was in conversation with uh, someone in the Department of Psychiatry at U of T uh, and alongside uh, Catherine Church uh, and Gijian Veronica had kind of pitched this 12 class series for the department that could be offered to um, psychiatry residents. And for folks who are unfamiliar with kind of the, the educational process of how a psychiatrist becomes a psychiatrist, there's med school, um, that all doctors do, and then um, they choose a specialty where they then enter residency. So choosing that you want to become a psychiatrist, you choose the specialty of psychiatry, uh, and you go somewhere like U of T uh, to do a residency, just to give you a sense of the kind of point at which we're, um, we're encountering um, these students and, and what resident means. Um, so initially, there was this kind of pitch of Here's 12 classes that we were we would offer if we were doing this kind of ideal approach uh, to education. But anyone who's familiar with curriculum planning in any, I'd say in any <laughs> capacity, would say, ooh, you're just gonna, you're gonna find somewhere to put 12 classes. Good luck, my friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think in particular, you're gonna find somewhere to put 12 really critical, um, discipline challenging kind of yeah. classes, hmm, are you going to get kind of the buy-in across the various folks that need to buy into it and, and to find the actual space? Because the other thing that I would say of what I've learned about kind of medical education and residency, it is so packed for residents in a way that is not kind. And there's like a broader conversation about ableism and burnout and who, you know, who gets to be in this space and can, can live and learn in this way. I think like that's a, that's a separate conversation from what I've learned of doing this work, uh, but trying to find the space for that was a lot. So pitch 12 classes. And in the first pilot year, we got six, six of those. So half. That's so that's still really impressive. Yeah, 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 I think so. 
So, and, and the pilot was also happening when there was a shift in how um, residents were being evaluated. Uh, so there was this kind of pilot group of eight residents who were shifting into this competency-based model. Um, that's less important for, I think, this story. Uh, but we had these eight students, so a really small group to start with in our pilot year to run these six classes. It felt, felt much more intimate when you could sit around you know, a boardroom table to do this kind of learning. So started out with that group. And then the next year was moved to the full cohort of just under 40 residents and down to four classes because, okay, well, you know, once you get into the core curriculum with everyone else, moved down to four, uh, four classes. Um, so yeah, that's the basic kind of structure of, of, how we got in um, and kind of the amount of time that we had, like four three-hour classes. And so what uh, university is, are the residents affiliated with or is it with the, or is it with the, a certain hospital? Is it with CAMH? So it's with, uh, it's with U of T, University of Toronto. U of T, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then they will, they get placed at different sites um, throughout their residency. And so you have four three-hour sessions with them. Um, you're trying to condense what I imagine is all of that study <laughs> into this into the space, or you know, some of the really important context for them, right? Some of the really important content for them. And so, um, what are the sort of the highlights uh, of the curriculum? Yeah. So in our in our kind of four class model we then went down to three in later years there's there's you know ways that that we've had to kind of adapt and shift but broadly the objectives that we're working with it we try to keep it as straightforward as possible um so one one core goal or objective introduce the perspectives knowledge and community organizing of mad people or the language that we would use in our intro uh, would be mental health service users, so the language of service users, which is a shift away from patient <laughs> for mm-hmm. them, but uh, not a, not stepping as far as mad. That's not to say we don't use the language of mad or madness, but that service user is kind of the language we're using in the curriculum. We want them to be able to identify how power and privilege play a role within the mental health system uh, to address the impact of gender, race, class, ability, sexual orientation, how each of these affect the experiences of service users, how they intersect you and connect with um, madness, uh, giving residents a chance to kind of explore opportunities for thinking critically about engagement and solidarity work, and to center um, kind of service user scholarship creation work throughout this process so that there are um, points where they're really directly engaging um, mm. with that. And we have like homework and assignments for them to do, which is also kind of not necessarily in keeping with their standard approach to education at, like, within residency. They're not, they're not expecting to write reflective papers, but we really valuing the process of, of reading, writing, reflecting, have them doing some of that as well. Uh, so there's which also adds in this layer of um, evaluation, which is yeah. really, really important, particularly because this initiative is service user 
designed uh, and led and developed and taught, right? Which is quite unusual. Across medical education and residency, um, you'd be more likely to see kind of guest spots or, or lectures or storytelling built in or brought in, whereas this um, educational project has, uh, has a different design or orientation from the very beginning and a different locus of control as well. And so I guess the next question I have is sort of two-pronged. What is the response from the residents? And then also, what is it like to teach and, and sort of like what feedback do you get and how challenging and or rewarding is it? Big questions. Yeah. <laughs> Big questions. So let me know if I miss one um, and need to return to it. I, I remember, like it's been so many years of doing it now. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a lot to unpack and reflect on. I remember when I was first working on designing and writing up the curriculum. Because we also, another thing that we had as part of this is we, we had an advisory that we've created that had, you know, other mad people, other people within the department who kind of got it. So psychiatrists that were doing kind of critical work, not necessarily mad studies work, wouldn't call it that, but kind of critical education work. Uh, and then uh, a couple of faculty members, one from the School of Disability Studies, another one from the Dalana School of Public Health. So a group to kind of bring this to and get some advice from those who have worked with these residents, get feedback from those who've done this kind of critical work. But I remember, you know, developing the curriculum and, and kind of biting my nails, thinking about how it would be received. Is it, is it too critical, not critical enough? Trying to really honor the radical roots of mad community organizing and then package it in a way where psychiatry residents could listen, right? And I, I remember one night in particular where I was I was staying up way late. It was like 5 a.m., right? Making revisions, thinking, and I'm having this kind of panic of, oh, you know, who am I to be doing this? Mm. How can how can I be going into this, uh, this classroom space, what expertise do I have to offer these doctors, these right. residents to then getting kind of indignant and, and like angry and going, wait a minute, <laughs> who are they? <laughs> who are they to, to question me? And I, I mean, again, hadn't even been in the classroom yet with them, but <laughs> this anticipation and thinking, oh, you know, who, no, I, I do, it's okay for me to be here and to be doing this work. And that first day uh, where we, the, the room that we had for in-person teaching was, uh, was at CAMH, was on site at CAMH. That was one of the, the locations. And I was wearing like this cape blazer and I'm walking down, you know, this corridor and my, my cape is kind of fluttering out behind me and I'm just thinking I am a crazy person going to teach psychiatry residents about like crazy things and I'm <laughs> walking through the halls of a hospital that I have stayed in right, right? wow and 
Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wearing a cape, of course, because of course I'm wearing a cape. Um, <laughs> you got to bring that witch energy. You got to bring that like. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, which which was just wild. And so to say from from the start, uh, you know, back in 2017 to now, we've encountered a range, a range of reactions, right? right. And certainly resistance. There, I think when you when you start out in this work at first, there's a curiosity of, oh, okay, like people who have this experience um, are here and teaching us. And that's great. That's progressive. Like that's cool. To then, how do we feel about what these people are saying or what they're sharing? Um, and there's a lot of well, that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Psychiatry isn't like that anymore. It's humane now. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Like, and I think it stems from this, this desire to distance from systemic and structural oppression, right? I'm not bad. Right. I'm not here to do bad things. I am here to help. And if you compared me to all of the other doctors who have chosen other specialties, there's this almost this, I don't know, like not superiority, but you know, I've chosen this thing that is hard and that is because I want to help and heal um, with this stigmatized population. And I do think some of the kind of reactions that emerge in that regard is because people who choose to work with mad people or around mad people do by extension experience degrees of not stigma, stigma is not the word that I would use, but, but backlash in the ways that sanism and ableism are really per pervasive when yeah. someone chooses to work with that client group. What residents say to us is, you know, their peers who choose other specialties or their family members uh, say, oh, you're choosing psychiatry? why right like you're gonna work with these people why so I think that they you know that kind of comes out a bit what we do falls into the realm of difficult knowledge right so it's a concept in the field of education about the challenges that comes with integrating content that explores the social and historical traumas that various groups face right so you know, when you're teaching, I think when you're teaching about, yeah, structural oppression, whether it be in relation to, you know, to queer communities, whether it be about anti-Blackness, um, colonization, those, those topics bring about reactions because there's some tension when, uh, when you feel like, oh, am I an oppressor? It's a hard mm -hmm. reckoning. Right. Especially after what some of them are 10 years of a certain have been, you know, taught a certain paradigm and been told and and not just 10 years, but maybe a lifetime of representation of their field. Right. As sort of healers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so for in four classes to expect, you know, a paradigm shift is is hard. But yeah. you're just planting the seeds, right? You're just 
starting starting it off for them and and letting them know that there's actually an entire different perspective to their profession. Yeah, and really saying, and we we always start with, you know, this is gonna feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, you're gonna feel tension. And I think across a, you know, not just in this in this initiative, but across lots of different educational spaces, when you experience discomfort when an idea makes, makes you uncomfortable, there are ways that that's revealing something about what you hold to be true, yeah. right? So with them, we say, okay, so try to hold space for this. At the bare minimum in our expectation is that you engage with this, right? So kind of get past the resistance. That doesn't mean that we expect that they will walk away totally transformed and that the way that they think about uh, madness or mental health um, is is going to be right in line with, and I mean, right in line with mad studies is an umbrella for a whole bunch of different approaches, but we want them to, to hold space for it, to make room for um, other truths, right? Even just saying <laughs> there are multiple truths. Can you make space for that and kind of hold it in tandem with what you know and think about how you will be in relationship the mad community, to this knowledge? How will you be accountable to it? Or will you? Like, what kind of questions are you going to ask yourself throughout your, you know, your residency and into your professional career? Can you make space for that reflection, right? Which that's the basis we're trying to do. That's the bare kind of minimum. Can you engage and make spaces? But it's a lot. It's a lot for sure. And in the end, they are actors in a system, right? That is incredibly uh, sanest. Um, But at the same time, there is always space for a micropolitics, right? That allows those sort of incremental changes. And it is, like you said, even if it is just asking a question at a certain moment, which could potentially, you know, change somebody's life, right? Whether it's like putting someone in restraints or not, or Yes. Some medication or not, or certain, you know, it, there's so many of those choices that could fundamentally impact a person. Yes. And so, and so those are, you know, those are the things that, that we hope for. One example um, of something that, that an activity that we, that we do with them, one of the reflection points um, is we have them play the inpatient game by Alana Zablocki. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I'm not, no. So it's a really cool, um, it's a really cool choose your own adventure kind of game. Um, so it's online and we can, we can find the link. I can share the link with you uh, to share in the episode notes. Um, there's a donation button for you to donate. But Alana Zablocki had, you know, personal experiences with the mental health system, with inpatient um, treatment and created this, this game to uh, kind of, show a window into the, the patient side mm-hmm. of the experience uh, of either voluntary or involuntary hospitalization, depending on the choices you make. Um, and so it's a game where you go in and you get a bit of a primer about the, the character, the perspective you're playing from, which is, you know, someone who has, you know, recently lost their pet and is, is dealing with some distress and decides to go to a local hospital. 
And it's kind of a series of encounters of, you know, okay, you're in the waiting room. This is what's happening. This is what you're seeing. You know, do you go here or go there? And you kind of get to choose. And that leads you to different points in the story. And so we have them play that for, you know, we say play for at least 40 minutes and then write a reflective paper on the experience of playing the game and what it raised for you. And even something like that. So one, we're introducing them to, you know, a piece of art, a piece of media, a game, you know, created by um, someone who has access services. And we're getting them to think about what that reveals about a shift in perspective, because they are the other side of the encounter. So maybe they see themselves in this story. Certainly the character will inter interact with residents, right? And, and so even the, the things that they pull from that of, oh, you know, until playing this, I didn't realize how many times we're asking a person to share this traumatic story, mm -hmm. right? Because I want to hear it, you know, firsthand from the patient, but I'm forgetting that they've told it now three times, for example, or the character having to decide, you know, whether they wait patiently outside of the nurse's station on the unit to be noticed as they're trying to get the attention of nurses or whether they bang on the glass and what, what does that yield and what happens and how are they treated uh, to interactions with other people um, as well. So one example of an, of an activity that we do with them to try and work at that shift in perspective. That's incredible. That's like, it's, I mean, it's so, so interesting. And I also feel like it's, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the program is also really based in sort of activism, right? Around, if I'm, if I'm gonna go to a psychiatrist, I want someone who has at least gone to your course, right? Because there's, there's a potential for at least some more empathy or some more understanding um, about the sort of expertise that mad folks hold. Well, and, and yeah, and trying to get them um, to recognize that. The other thing is, you know, we do this kind of historical tour of oppression within psychiatry, <laughs> um, which, again, we only have four classes. We could spend so much time in this, but it's kind of the whirlwind of thinking through the ways in which that field has, you know, pathologized various groups of people and done a lot of harm right? From hysteria to homosexuality, uh, all of these things within the history of the discipline that they don't get anywhere else. Yeah. There isn't very much room within the, when you think of all of the things that they're fitting into residency uh, and, and training residents to, to practice, the arts and humanities or, or history, not high priority. So some of these things that we're also bringing forward that can elicit those reactions of that was in the past um, are really important because for us, we say, you know, okay, history gives us a lens. We can look back and, and recognize all these things and say together in this current time and place, that was really bad. That was really terrible. And hey, that was connected to these systems and structures of power and these ideologies. And sure, we could stop there, 
Or we could say, hmm, I wonder what is happening right now that is harder to recognize, harder to notice because we don't have the perspective of history or hindsight. You know, and the related question is, where are the shadows mm. of that, those past harms? Where are they living now? What do they look like now? How are mad women treated when we move, you know, we can look at the hysteria as this really dated and, and, and wild kind of approach to, to women and madness. But, you know, what, what's going on in terms of gender and madness now? And can we recognize it? And that's where, you know, there's value if we're willing to do the hard work of looking, right? And confronting it. So we try to do that historical piece with the pull through to ask, what is the legacy of this? And can you recognize it elsewhere within the mental health sector? So, I mean, this course is very unique. There's not many like them in the world. Um, if you could give someone advice on, you know, someone who's planning to sort of do this, what, what are the sort of lessons you've learned? And what is the value of sort of bringing this, um, this course to medical residents, psychiatric residents? Yeah, I mean, a really big part of it uh, is relationships, right? So it, it wouldn't uh, have even been possible if there weren't kind of initial relationships and collaborations with the department and some receptivity from kind of the right the right folks uh, to even give this a try because you need you need champions and certainly there have been points early on where some of the feedback has been well residents don't like it uh, and then you need to have someone to say well the, is it about whether they like it or not or is it about kind of this ethical imperative uh, to include the the perspectives of service users and to have their leadership within uh, these educational initiatives right so having the relationships be able to do the work and the champions to kind of help you um, at those times uh, the other thing that I would say is when you're doing I think that I think this is true for a lot of engagement style work or places where you're coming in um, with a lived experience of something and you're within a system where your experience is typically subjugated or marginalized, have a buddy. Don't do it alone. The fact that Lucy and I do it together has been the reason we have been able to mm. do it and continue to do it, right? Because across the years of of teaching and refining this work, we've also endured the effective toll on our body minds, right? The, the emotional toll of doing this work because there are ways where, you know, you are discounted and almost disavowed from your community of by merit of being in um, that educational space and, and teaching that um, you're not mad enough right? Like you're not crazy enough to be there. So there's this kind of push and pull. Plus you deal with a lot of sanism and ableism um, in the responses. So if you are someone 
in that place doing that work, I would say, don't do it alone. Like have someone that you can kind of walk out of uh, one of the, one of the classes and go, is it just me? Or, you know, did, did this really happen? Or, or a meeting about the curriculum and to say, are they gaslighting us? They're gaslighting us, right? (laughs) You, you need that. I would say to keep you sane, but I'm not going to say that because let's be real. We're not, that's, that's, we're not aiming for that, but just to keep you whole and to keep you grounded. So having another person that's been really, really integral to this work for sure. I think some of the value in doing it is learning about how they learn, right? As, uh, as a, a mad scholar, as a mad person, getting this peak and learning so much about the curriculum, what they learn, how they learn from whom and when, that's been really useful for me when I even think outside of the specific work. Uh, strategizing or thinking about the ways that sanism becomes really in, entrenched. It helps me to pay attention to various kinds of moves around equity, diversity, and inclusion in education, mm-hmm. and to be mindful of the ways that, in particular, in my experience in this area, ableism and sanism are so often left out of that or there's this kind of competition for, well, you know, we're, we're going to have this anti-racism work here. We're going to have this LGBTQ speaker there. And never does it take up in tandem sanism, right? We're, we, okay, we can talk about homophobia, you know? We can talk about racism, but taking it up together uh, so it's it's made me very mindful of the kind of movements that happen around around that work. And then I think a tension that has always and and will always exist for me in this work is, you know, how do I stay true to myself and other mad people and mad community in doing this work? because it really is walking this fine line of critical enough, but not so critical that they can't hear me, right? I have this quote from Bridget McWade over my desk that says, how do we challenge institutionalized and disciplinary ways of hearing? And that really stays top of mind in trying to work in this critical space. It's asking yourself, what does a paradigm shift look like? And are we contributing to it, right? Can we make allies? Can we make advocates? Can we plant that seed, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier. And if we can, then maybe, maybe they can help to change the system, right? Maybe they can truly collaborate to center madness. And that's what the class is called, Centering Madness. Provocative title, right? Um, So madness is there and it's in the room. But I think for me, yeah, the the value in it is learning more about how to work in this difficult space uh, and to continue to ask those questions about the work and what it can do and also recognize what it can't. 
Well, thank you for doing the work and, you know, for the potential change that it might make, um, you know, again, on an individual case or whether there is potential for systemic and structural change. I think both of those things are quite valuable in the end. I hope so. And we do, sometimes we see residents circle back or come back to us later and ask us questions, you know, trying to, trying to get at something. And so we have seen examples where even when there have been some kind of more difficult points in maintaining the curriculum um, or losing curricular time, which certainly has happened over the years, we've seen a kind of a decrease in, in the amount of curricular time that we've had. Um, and some residents actually saying like, hey, we need this and we want to share with our department that this is something that is important. So that in and of itself, whether they, you know, fully get it or don't, having them say that or do that, that's, that's, a, that's a little thing, that's something. And um, so we've seen that as well. That's wonderful. All right, I'd like to move on to segment two, what I call the middle or the liminal. And I wanna know who is your academic crush? This question feels so loaded. <laughs> oh no. And, and like, and like, I don't know. I'm like, is it, is it vulnerable? Is it revealing? Who's my <laughs> academic crush? Uh, I mean, there are, there are so many people um, whose work I really, really admire. I think Caleb Luna is pretty wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so Caleb Luna as someone who is a, a fat studies scholar, but kind of works that intersection again of, of, of fatness, of queerness, of, of disability. It's a, it's a crush because A, they're brilliant, and B, um, they bring perspectives that, that give me that fiery feeling you know, that, that hit on so much of, of what is going on, or they say a thing that you just, you hadn't gotten to yet in your mind, like something that was swirling. And then, you know, they post to Instagram or, you know, something like that. And that's, they also write, you know, that you could find academic articles by Caleb Luna and they're great, but in a social media presence as well, bring a lot of joy, which we need um, and fire and passion. So I would say that 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 Caleb Luna is one uh, one crush that I'll name. I mean, who else might I give? Well, I, I'm I'm reading um, Merrick Pilling's new book right mm -hmm. now, um, and so uh, Merrick would be another um, Mad Studies uh, kind of crush, academic crush. Eli Clare for the way. Um, that they write, blending kind of poetry and theory in a way that that I love. I could probably go down a long list. Those are good. And Merrick has been on the show. So if anyone's interested okay. uh, in Merrick's work, um, yeah, and wants to hear him talk, the last episode of this podcast was with Merrick. Yeah. Amazing. I'll have to go back to that one. Yeah. Um, your best advice for young academics. Ooh, really consider whether academia is where you want to be, mm. whether it's what you need, uh, whether it's going to give you what you're looking for. I think, I think so often 
people feel really pushed to, to, to continue um, within academia or to keep like, go to grad school, get a master's, get a PhD, uh, et cetera. And, and I really value slowing down. Slowing down helped me, saves me from ending up in a clinical psychology program that that probably would have been terrible. Um, though I do think it's funny that now I, that I teach psychiatry residents now. So I'm like still kind of involved in this, this weird space. Um, but I'm really glad that I didn't end up in it. And that was because I took, I took time away from school, right? Like I, so taking your time and really thinking about whether it's something that you want, doing your research, (laughs) so nerdy, but, you know, talk to other people who are in or who have taken the program that you're interested in and find out, you know, what they got from it and see if that excites you and think about and ask other people again about um, supervisors and people to work with. Because I think, again, it kind of comes back to relationships uh, when, when you're entering into graduate studies I think having the right relationships and support and kind of people in your corner that can make all the difference as well. So yeah, relationships and research and take your time. Grad school will always be here. Always. That's wonderful advice. Um, segment three, outside the project, who is the most famous person you've met and what was that like? So for many years, I, I worked at uh worked volunteered at a music festival uh in a performer services capacity um so i've had like these kind of professional encounters or met um a variety of of people i think the benefit of me being in that role is that uh one i really suck at knowing who people are (laughs) um where they're like that's alan from great big c oh my god and i'm there like cool yeah i mean i know great big c I'll walk Alan over to this stage, <laughs> um, you know, because, because I don't know, but I, and, and so I think the one time that I was really starstruck and had to, had to say to like my fellow volunteers and my team, I cannot be involved here. I cannot, I cannot interface with this person uh, was Fred Penner. So Fred Penner was a, um, he had a TV show in, in like the eighties, um, like children's performer sings like hit the road, Jack would crawl through a log with his little guitar. And so he came one time to this festival and for me, it was too much. I just, I could not engage with Fred Penner in a professional capacity and not be like my childhood. (laughs) So maybe not the, the most typical kind of celebrity interaction, but very momentous for me at keeping my distance. But I mean, in, in passing, like I could, I could name drop cool names, but that would just be, that would just be silly. I love that story. No, that's so obscure sort of, you know, childhood star. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Apparently he did a tour of universities not too long ago because it was like, this was, I mean, not too long ago, I will add a caveat that time is a weird thing in my brain and especially (laughs) with the pandemic. So maybe we're talking 
we're definitely talking over five years ago, but he did like a circuit of of shows at universities because there were just all of these, you know, university students who were so enamored with Fred Penner, this figure from their childhood coming to sing um, like children's songs to them. So I I should have, I should have gotten tickets to one of those, but instead I just, you know, watched him play from the side stage at this festival. Do you carry around an obscure fact, like a piece of knowledge that other people don't know and sort of use it ever to make conversation or to, you know, yeah. Um, contention? Well, <laughs> so it, mad studies related um, from teaching uh, a history of madness at Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, one of the, the lectures that I teach is on the asylum, right? So currently Cam Age. So I have all these details about like the architectural history of the building or we'll walk past say another building in Toronto and I'll be like, did you know that this building only like came about at this time and was rival to the asylum built by, you know? So it's, it. I was in High Park with someone the other day and I had to resist the urge to be like, do you know that Colburn Lodge was the home of John George Howard who, who designed the asylum? So there's nerdy stuff like that, that I absolutely, I mean, is it obscure? In many circles, yes. Yes. Yes, but is very kind of relevant to me. I'm trying to think if there's any other obscure kind of knowledge that I carry around. And I believe John Howard also donated High Park to the city yes. of Toronto. He literally owned the entire park. Well, so the city which, added a bit of land to it after, but yeah, he just like owned and lived on. I think they wanted to have a sheep farm or something. Right. So there was that's that was yeah, just someone's place that they lived in the city. Can you imagine? Yeah. Today? So in some ways, like thank you to him, but also you know an architect of yes. a very kind of horrible place. Um, as really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Troubled history. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that kind of that kind of stuff. And especially if you if you walk with me past the, um, the current CAMH site, the Queen Street site, um, that is just like gonna be bubbling out of me. And I'm like trying to hold it in of <laughs> don't burst forth like, and did you know that like this building, but now we have this like, I have endless fascination over the redevelopment. Yeah. Um, because of teaching this content and learning so much more about the history of the physical space. So that would be where my obscure knowledge kind of bursts forth. And I have to decide, will this person be interested or just bored? Besides Merrick, who you told us you're reading, is there anyone else uh, that um, you're currently enjoying? Currently enjoying in in terms of reading? In terms of reading, yeah. Um, So I just got where... Where is it on my desk? I just got this um, collection of writing passed on to me. I'm showing it to you, which of course no one else can see because this is a podcast. (laughs) Um, But it's this little book called The Stories Around Us. uh, And it's mental health narratives of South Asian women pulled together by the Gerstein Center. So yeah, it was just published by by the Gerstein and um, just a book, a collection of narratives. So that's another thing that's kind of on my desk under only a few levels of paper. Do you have something that you do that brings you joy, like a hobby? Yes. Yes, I do. Another thing that I do and kind of the way that 
I got more into fat activism is through zine making. Mm. Uh, so zines, Z-I-N-E zines, like magazine, but shorter. So kind of handmade, self-published books. They can be anything from, you know, personal writing to art zines or fanzines, or maybe you're writing about a particular subculture. Me, I write about fatness and queerness and madness. So yeah, I started um, making zines, I don't know, many years ago. And pre-pandemic would go to different zine fairs, which are just excellent spaces to encounter other people kind of writing or producing art uh, without academic gatekeeping. Mm. Like a place for really kind of anything, anything that you want to write about, you can write about. And that was, I think, discovering zines and particularly like fat activist oriented zines was at a time before we were seeing that kind of that kind of writing and 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 perspective being brought forward. We're seeing it now in terms of published materials, um, you know, books and the like. But um, for me, zines were kind of the first entry point. And the way that I even um, decided to bring the the fat activist side of myself into academia uh, was because there was a conference in Iceland. And I thought maybe I can pitch a zine making workshop and like a fatness in zines and and uh, maybe they'll like that. And they did. And I went and I connected with other people. And that was a moment that had me kind of bring bring that part of myself into conversation with academia um, and then focus my dissertation work in that direction. But you see, you've asked me about hobby and I've given you a hobby and then told you how that hobby got sub- sucked into academia. So the one that hasn't been sucked into academia for the most part, yeah, uh, is uh, I, I collage prayer candles with Buffy characters. That started oh. with Buffy characters. So like Willow, patron saint of either queer rage or research, depending on what you need um, in the moment. Um, started with uh, Buffy characters and then um, kind of moved on and, and have done a whole host of, of people on, on prayer characters from, you know, David from Schitt's Creek to Lizzo to Dolly Parton. So yeah, collaging prayer candles. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And, and I think in some ways you've also given um, students, young academics, another piece of advice, which is sort of like, try it. Right, like try it at a conference, right? Try it and, and yeah, and the fact that you might be focusing part of your dissertation on it seems like sort of a wonderful trial and error. Um, yeah. Yeah, and also, though, also I would say, be okay with keeping that stuff outside. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to bring it. It doesn't have to connect in. That would be my other piece of advice, I guess, if you circle back to that, is that some things can be just for you yes. and not for the institution. Yeah, while everything is copy, some things don't have to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, published. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And let's close off by asking, as I always do all my guests, how do you think disability can save the world? Mm. I think disability is already saving the world. The brilliance, creativity, and persistence of mad and disabled people is and always has been a force to be reckoned with. Like, I mm. think. Um, I think we're already doing it. So uh, if you don't know that, 
wake up, hello, mad and disabled people are here um, and, and have always been doing so, so much um, for us, right? We've always known that the state and its institutions will not save us, right? So we've built beautiful networks of our own, beautiful care communities. Um, we've offered support to one another and, and support so good that then the institution is like, we need some of this. We need to integrate and take some of this. Um, and they do their own thing with that model. But it's the ways that we care for each other um, is an act of saving the world. And I think of I think of the pod mapping work that Mia Mingus does. Um, I think of a course that my partner actually ran called Get Out Alive Together, focusing on um, disaster preparedness and survival and the ways that MAD, disabled, and, and other multiply marginalized communities have already been kind of doing this work of, of taking care of each other and bringing us into conversation with these dominant narratives about who will survive and, and who will be there. You know, I think that mad and disabled people are there pushing these conversations and caring, caring for one another. Like some work that I'm currently really excited about and, and social media. I don't know if you've seen on, on Instagram, that's where I saw it, the Society of Disabled Oracles. So there's this new Instagram page and there's like so much wisdom. I think of Fat Rose and Fat Lib Inc. and the organizing that they've been doing um, around caring for fat and disabled people. And so those are just a few small examples of the way that the mad and disabled people are already saving the world because we've always, always known that those in power under the current kind of structure of this neoliberal society are not going to do it. And so we're going to do it. We are doing it through the ways that we care for each other. Thank you, Lauren, so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great to talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks to Lauren for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavetheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, check out my website, katieshenuda.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Katie Shenuda. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World. Yeah.